Hello world, you're listening to the Refugee Voices of Sangrila. I'm your host, Suraj Budathoki. We are in a mission to tell the stories of Buddhist refugees that are barely shared or get on air. But today we have Dr. Ricky Krins, who is from the Netherlands, but she lived in Bhutan for more than two decades. She is the founder and director of Learning Exchange Foundation. She is an anthropologist, she is a writer, social entrepreneur, and she founded Bhutan Hotel School. She's also a travel designer, guide, and many, many more. Dr. Ruki Krins, welcome to the Refugee Voices of Sangrila. Thank you very much, Suraj. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. How are you doing there in Netherlands? You are, it's it's a bit boring now with COVID, so we're already <laughs> uh, locked, I mean, not, not down, but uh, stuck to our home since a year, and I used to travel a lot, so it's been a year in one place for such a long time. But, I've, you know, but overall, it's okay. We cannot complain. Okay, but uh, yeah, you know the uh, the situation in the United States were pretty in dire condition. Yes. So, well, let's talk about Bhutan and Bhutanese refugees and your experience with them. So, at first, how did you hear about Bhutan? Yeah, this was in uh, 1989. I was in my last year of my of a master's degree in uh, cultural anthropology. And normally, when you are almost finish your course, you have to go for half a year to a place where you do research. That can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. It can be in, in your own country, but that you will look at a sp- specific group of people you want to study, maybe migrants or, or refugees. So I always wanted to, my dream was to go to a remote place where not many people have been before. So one day I got a letter from the professor from the university asking, they were looking for students who are interested to go to Bhutan. And in those days, there was no internet, there was nothing. And I never, I never heard of Bhutan. And I said, wow, this would be a great opportunity. So I looked it up in Encyclopedia Britannica and it says this small Himalayan kingdom and where there are a lot of bears where people wear swords, you know, the, the, the dashos. So I said, wow, this is an interesting place. So I signed up and then I was chosen. With, we were with six students, three anthropology students and three irrigation engineers. And we had to do interdisciplinary research in uh, in three villages. And I was sent with uh, Marjule, irrigation engineer, to a remote village in the northwest of Bhutan. And that was a 12 walk from Punaka, the song in Punaka. Mm-hmm. And an, uh, another couple out to Dagana, and another couple they went to uh, Mongar, and uh, so we had to stay for half a year. Look how people I had to organize uh, themselves in uh, rice uh, culture, and Marjolaine was doing the technical research on measuring the water. The, and it was a unique experience, uh, mind you. You know, I lived for half a year in evil society. There was nothing from the 20th. And, uh, there was an amazing experience. So, but I was very isolated from the town and what was going on so I didn't know but research in the south in Dagana so when we met again after our research in Timpu we had to write a report for the Ministry of Agriculture and then the couple there was a woman and a, and a man they spent time in Dagana and they told us about what's happening with the southern uh, the Lotsampa population Dr. Ricky, yes. uh, we can come to that story later, but I just want to know, know what particular issue or thing that you get attracted towards Bhutan? At, towards, that, that uh, those? Nobody ever heard of the place. And- 
and they just want to explore what is there. Yes, and knew that it was uh, situated next to Nepal, almost. You know, Sikkim I never heard either, uh, and that it was uh, Tibetan culture, and that was very attractive to me. But we had no idea what to expect because we had to go in right. a haste. They needed us very quickly there, so we had a week training there. We got from Dutch Development Organization it was Francois mm-hmm. van Raab. Everybody knows her. She is also an anthropologist who wrote a lot about Bhutan. And she she's living, still living in Bhutan. So we got a little bit of trinkets and how to behave and all that. And then we were sent to the villages. So and those days there was no no there was only two telephones in in the capital. There was no hospital. There was there was nothing. There was only one shop, some peanut butter and toothpaste and that very very basic. I just want to pick one thing from your uh, in a statement. You said how to behave. So would would you elaborate more on this? How to behave in front of you know king or uh, dasso? No, like we, we have got we uh, we was remote village which farmers, but uh-huh. there's a lot of animistic beliefs, and so mm-hmm. so you, you there were a lot of do's and don'ts. Like for example, if you hand over something to somebody to do that with two hands, we in the West we don't know that, but all over Asia okay. you it's a polite way. If you give to give uh, three or one, you know a number that was not even. If okay. you give somebody X, you I give see. three X or one, but not two X. So things like that and. Yeah, and that. But later on, actually, by being in a village, I learned much more. You know, I, we made, I made mistakes all the time, like bark, that kind of stuff. My landlady, where I lived, was a uh, shaman, a ninja, poa. And uh, she was very religious, and she didn't like me very much because I was unknowledgeable. You went to Bhutan in 1987, correct? In February 1990. So you were you were at the peak of the uh, political upheaval. So so my question is, you were in Bhutan in 1990s during the political agitation. Some of the people you know uh, may left Bhutan at that time. Did you experience uncomfortable situation while seeing people leaving country? Not at all, because we didn't know. First of all, there was about there's no books about Bhutan. We didn't speak the language. Didn't have good translators. As I said, you know, I was in a remote village in the north uh, northwest of the country, and where there's no and I couldn't. So I didn't absolutely had no clue. I only heard from was back in the capital that was a census that they were and that they were scared because they said that there were so many people and that it would be the majority. And we also heard that people in the south have more access to money. They're much better organized. They're much better schooled because in those days, most Buddhists in the village there were no schools. Kids, right. they worked with the parents. They went into the forest with the cows, and that's it. And yeah, and it's to the monasteries. But there was no economic development at all. And that the southern people were more economic developed, and that that they were scared about that. And because of Sikkim, the Nepalese population in Sikkim, they demanded a democracy in the 70s. That became then, and the Indian helped, and, and all that. You know uh, the story about that and the Bhutanese were very scared about that that's the only thing I would grapevine only the couple who uh, Rolf and Anita of Roswita was her name when we came together in the capital to write the report that there was something really wrong going on in the south and that there was so much discrimination and that the Lotsampa people cannot have their, their own culture and yeah they were very critical we didn't my, my Yulene and me we had no clue because you know we were shut off of the rest of the world we were living in the middle 
Middle Evil society. It also happened uh, maybe because and uh, the most of the uh, Lord Sampas who were expelled, they were from the south, and people from north they probably do not know about this thing. And it, it also because there was no television, no exactly. radio, no newspapers. Yeah. That's why. So, so you are from Netherlands, and in democratic country, there is freedom of speech and everything, democracy. So you suddenly landed up in Bhutan, where there was no constitution, no democracy, no freedom of speech, anything like that. How did you feel when you hear all these things are going on in Bhutan? But that was much later that I heard that because, mind you, in 1990, I was doing my research. I researched the, the village in as such, so there was not a wider scope and to knowledge because. There was not even. I think they had the council just started, and there was one one per week, and there was no TV station, there was no internet, there was very. There was in Zonka, so we had no access to knowledge. Only years later, in 1999, I went back, and then I went back on a regular base and came, and then TV was allowed. Then I heard that also nation was going on, and. And also that the Chachopa people were very discriminated, and that the Drukpa culture was a dominant culture. But you know, I was studying the Drukpa culture, so I was not much much involved with the, with the human rights situation in Bhutan and on the politics and all that, because it was just you know an absolute kingdom, and the king was the, the boss, and everybody had to listen to the king, and that's it. So, so I was not also not interested in it because I was never so much involved with politics and all that. I was more interested uh -huh. in Buddhism, animism, the culture of the uh, the people in the villages because that's what what my yeah was what I was passionate about. So, so you went to Bhutan for your research, and, and later on, you you chose to stay there. You stayed there for 27 no, years. No, I went. Right? Um, you know, uh, when I came back from my uh, Research. I did my masters. I got my, and then I met my husband. I got married, and then in 1999, when my son was a little bit uh, older, my husband said, "If you want to pick up the study on Bhutan again, why don't you do it?" So, and then I went back in a different way, like uh, a tourist guide, because that was the easiest to go, yes. and because it was very hard to get into the country with the visa uh, regulations. And then, and then, in, so I went back. Then I did a project on a, a film on the. Um, position of women because in the villages the, the women had a very strong position and and the inheritance went from mother to daughter which was very unique in South Asia so so I did that uh, you know if you in Bhutan as a foreigner and in those days uh, not so many people spoke English so you you're quite isolated so you don't have all the access to all the, the final ways of things but I saw that I heard a lot about that the Lotsampa people people from Nepali descent that they had to flee the country there was still, but there was one gentleman, Dasho Gurung, and I asked him about it. I said, what is it? And he said, oh, he didn't say much about it because he was well positioned with the government. And so it was very hard in Bhutan to get information on that. I just heard it through rumors. So I want you to explain uh, something about your business in Bhutan. You, you established a hotel school and then you were uh, blacklisted. You were not allowed to go back to even to uh, sell or do something about your business. Could you please shed light on sure. those things? Yes, in, in 2008 I did my PhD on Bhutan and then after that I saw the big changes coming because democracy came in and, and, and Bhutan was not the Bhutan anymore as I knew it. I went back as a tourist guide. Then I I did a, a project with unemployed youth uh, in Bumtang. We did. I financed it. It's a personal leadership program.
program for young people because I saw that uh, there was a lot of problems with youth unemployment, with drugs abuse, also with criminality and especially the kids from the richer people, they, yeah, they, they took a lot of drugs and all that. And I saw that there was a huge problem with youth. And then uh, tourism com was coming up after, after 2008 especially, so a lot of little hotels came up, but the Bhutanese had no clue how to run a hotel. And the whole principle of high value, low volume tourism, if you let people 250, pay $250 a day to be, you at least should provide decent hotels and not these crappy places with food poisoning and all that. I got the idea to start, I wanted to do five eco-lodges, actually starting with one eco-lodge in Buntang with the partners I worked with in the travel world. And they had land and I started working on that project, trying to get investors, but that was in 2008 and as you know in 2008 and it was impossible to get investment money especially not for a, and uh, and I was as you call in the financial sector a startup so that's when we decided I got partner uh, on board in the in the foundation and he said let's start with the hotel school because that was my idea to do a cool five-star level a decent uh, training for unemployed youth and there is where I really start to see what oh yeah before that I did did a, a research trip with a musician. We wanted to do a, a musician project there with classical music and, and Bhutanese music. <clears throat> and then I heard more and more people telling me in Tongsa that they got land in the south. And I said, oh, you got land in the south, Babi. Yeah, that was belonged to uh, the Tsangpa people who, uh, who fled. And so I heard more and more about it going on over there. So all the time I heard that, that but I couldn't believe when I heard there was 120,000 people leaving the country I said that it's more than 10% how is that possible it's, it's I couldn't put my head around it because you know, can you imagine if you lose for a country 15% of your population that's huge so I think so I couldn't you know I couldn't put my finger on it to be honest to, to what was going on so but then you know when uh, when I started with the uh, in 2009 I was trying to do fundraising I went back on a regular base etc uh, etc et so 2015 I could open the hotel school I found a local counterpart get a seat investor so and then in the hotel school we took the poorest of the poor and kids with no uh, possibilities then I learned we had a lot of Lotsampa um, uh, people, okay. uh, southern girl, uh, girls and boys, some Bhutanese, and they told me that they didn't have an ID. And I said, how is it possible? Why don't you have an ID? Now we have girls from, from the south. They said, what's going on? Turned out that it's still very discriminatory. The, the whole policy is that they are not recognized. They're not recognized as Bhutanese. They have no rights. Every year they try to to get they, they send in a petition petition for, for the king to recognize us being Bhutanese citizens and they are not and I couldn't believe it and and we had about oh 30 percent of our students were uh, southern Bhutanese and uh, Rosdi uh, an important question because there are many uh, reports from international uh, human rights organizations that there are more than 80,000 stateless people who are Bhutanese who were Bhutanese citizens before the census so we are sort of running out of time. We have two minutes. I just want to ask a very short question, and I, you know, I hope that you will give me a, yeah. give us a short answer. You were blacklisted. I don't. Why? Your book. You wrote a book, the blacklisted in Bhutan. You to, you wrote that 
it was because you talk something against the royal family. Was it was it right? a member of the royal family who blacklisted me, but they never told me. I found out to a powerful friend who has connections, but they never told me why. They never I told see. me who has done me. Why I was blacklisted is complete. But they did it to many other people who worked in Bhutan. To only we can. Yeah, and okay. so I think I did something they didn't like, and then they do it. And it's only royals have the power to do that, not government people. Completely understood. So, um, what happened to a property in Bhutan? Your business in Bhutan? It's did you still, sell? Uh, no, I didn't own it. But it's still I, it there. was a non-for-profit. I did it non-for-profit. I, I see. So, you know, Bhutan has been, you know, traveling around the world, talking about its gross national happiness. But whereas the the UN World Happiness Index recorded Bhutan 95th, 97th, and yeah, yeah, yeah. 97th, 84th in the World Happiness Index, but Netherlands is fifth <laughs> best country in, in 2019. Yeah. Then why why Netherlands is not going around the world and talking about happiness that yeah, you guys we have, have there, all the you know, northern European countries, Switzerland and Scandinavia, the Netherlands? We have true happiness because we're rich countries. And we have freedom of speech. We have free, uh, human rights are in place, etc. Bhutan is a joke. With a, it's just propaganda. It's a clever way of of some dashos that came up with that, and it, it's 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 a scandal. And it has to do with the the, the Buddhist uh, tralala because all these Americans they become Buddhist and they become more Catholic than the Pope, and they love mm -hmm. it. Yeah, of course, it's a beautiful country, and and all the rituals. You know, if you look deeper, it's just quite shocking. I mean, I can tell a lot of stories of nuns and, and monks and what's going on in his ministries and there's a lot of corruption and no it, it's just sheer propaganda they did it very cleverly and it yeah uh, i would definitely love to have you in my next episode uh it's pleasure having you dr uh, ricky cranes uh you thank have a you and thank day you for ahead. having me thank you good luck with all your work you are listening to the refugee voices of sangrila with suraz Brathoki. you can find us in anchor.fm breaker google podcast Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Today, you have listened to good and bad experience of Dr. Rocky Krins during her stay in Bhutan. I will be back next week with a different story. Till then, you have a wonderful day ahead. Mm -hmm.